so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ray Orland, a longtime pastor and the author of a recent book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. And today we talk about a gospel vision for combating the scourge of pornography in society today. Ray Ortland is the president of Renewal Ministries, the pastor-to-pastor at Emanuel Church in Nashville, and a canon theologian with the Anglican Church of North America. He's the author of several books, including the Preach the Word commentaries on Isaiah and Proverbs, as well as Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. He's also a contributor to the ESV Study Bible. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit of what went into this book and why you wanted to write this particular book in this season? Yeah, thanks, Jason. It's great to be with you. I wrote this because of through hundreds of interactions with my son's generation, guys at Emmanuel Church and other young men, magnificent young men in their 20s and 30s. I began to realize that They don't understand the grandeur that God has, in fact, put upon them. There's nothing in this world that talks to us about our God-given magnificence. But the Bible, on page one of the Bible, I mean, this is not a theme that develops along the way. It's not a sub-theme. This is one of the main messages of the Bible. Genesis chapter one, page one of the Bible, God creates us in his image after his likeness. So this is true universally. It's part of what it means to be human. And what what is it to be in the image of God? The word image is used elsewhere in the Old Testament of an actual statue. Now, we aren't literal statues of God because he has no form, no shape, no edges. But Gerhard von Rott, in his commentary on Genesis, says that just as an emperor with a vast domain puts up a statue of himself in those parts of his empire that he doesn't often visit. 
God, the king of the universe, has placed us here in this world to embody and to represent and to advance his kingdom. We are royal figures representing the king. That is a grandeur this world didn't give us, and that is a grandeur this world can't take from us. And what if my son's generation, what if this rising generation dares to believe that's who they really are? And that's why they're here. It would change a lot of things, including the problem of pornography. Yeah. I think it's pretty obvious on the outset of even talking about it in that way, that this is a kind of a different book on pornography. I think often a lot of books on pornography focus on tips and tricks and accountability strategies and all of those things can be good and helpful. But you're kind of going back and showing us the grandeur of God, um, how we're created in his image, how we're made for nobility, how we're made to be men of nobility, especially. And so, In the introduction, you mentioned that pornography is like a new slave trade, uh, that it's the slave trade of our day, and it's fundamentally a justice issue. I think that might strike some people as odd when we're talking about the nature of pornography, especially with the ubiquity of pornography in our culture today. Can you explain a little bit about why you say that this is the new slave trade and how that understanding that reality can fundamentally alter the way we talk about pornography or sexuality uh, within the church? It's a justice issue because this is the humiliation of human beings, the degradation of human beings. They are being monetized. They are being degraded. There's a a story in chapter two. Chapter two was the one that actually messed with me the most. And I have a friend who was trafficked. She was involved in the sex industry and in pornography in the production of it. And today she is a glorious and a radiant Christian woman. She helped me understand what it's actually like, what the industry is like on the inside. And there's no one there who's being used in that way, who made it their ambition. That's how I want to spend my life. They were degraded into it. And um, I don't even use the word, I don't think I use the word purity anywhere in the book. That's a legitimate category. It's a wonderful word, but it can have connotations anymore that I have some reservations about. But I do use the word integrity. I use the word nobility and I use the word justice because a world that turns this glorious, magnificent gift of God, our human sexuality, into something to be traded and something to be, there is non-consensual, criminal behavior uploaded to the major porn websites. It's a matter of law as well as of basic humanity. And of course, all good law expresses and protects basic humanity. So I'm looking at this, Jason, and I'm thinking, if we were in pre-Civil War America, in the South, where you and I live, we would see three basic profiles among in the Christian community. Some Christians were slaveholders. They bought and sold people. They were involved in the trade. Other Christians, secondly, were passive observers. They didn't like what they saw. They didn't approve of it. 
But they shrugged their shoulders. They said, what can you do? That's the way things are. Thirdly, there were active liberators and abolitionists. So there were slave traders, passive observers, active liberators. Now we look back on that Christian scenario. Whom do we grieve over? Whom do we celebrate? We can see it was a justice issue. It wasn't just a matter of personal character. It was also a matter of social conscience. And if anything should mark a Christian out of the basic ethic of love, the love of God in Christ, we must have a social conscience. We cannot be passive observers, and we certainly cannot be active participants. So what about us today? There are those who are participating and involved in enabling, participating in this industry by going to it. And there are those who look on and they don't like what they see. They don't say much. But by God's grace, for his glory alone, Jason, you and I and so many, we just want to be liberators. Jason, I have grandchildren. I've got grandsons and granddaughters. I care about their future. Nothing can make me not care. So here I am in my, in my 70s, and it's hard to imagine a better use of my 70s than to fly right into the center of this storm and do what I can to stigmatize, marginalize, recategorize the porn industry while simultaneously talking to young men in my son's generation about their actual grandeur in God's image and the grandeur of every woman on the face of the earth. So I am energized. I am in retirement and I've never been busier. I've never been happier and I've never been more determined. So I'm giving these years to God and asking that he'll use this book to detonate something in the rising generation. Well, I pray to God for that end as well, because that's something with this type of book. I'm glad that you brought up the personal component as well as kind of the social component, because I think often, not only in other ethical issues, but specifically with the pornography issue, often a lot of resources and books and tips and tricks and tools and software are focused on kind of that personal accountability element. And that's what the book is so refreshing, at least it was for me, is that you focus on kind of the social aspects of it too. It's not, it's not either or, it's both and. It's there is moral, personal responsibility and accountability there. And it is a personal sin in that sense, but that personal sin also has corporate effects. It's affecting men and women created in God's image. And that's how I, I was very encouraged about how you kind of reframe this, especially in a very theological context. I know that you've kind of alluded to it already, but you focus the book on six letters, uh, letters to your sons, uh, speaking to them directly as an older saint, as someone who has lived a long life. Um, and I don't say that in a, a bad way by any means. Uh, I know for me, it's encouraging to read a letter like this from an older man. Um, I did, I've never had a really strong father figure um, and a lot of kind of spiritual issues specifically. And so having that type of letter and reading it is such an encouragement to me as a young father. I have two sons. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old boy. And I often think about pornography, not just how to keep them away from it um, in that sense, which is obviously something my wife and I talk about, 
but also how to raise them to be men of nobility, as you write, and men of God, uh, pursuing after him and seeing kind of the fullness of this. So why do you think that this is kind of a better approach to approaching a lot of the issues of pornography rather than kind of the more personalized aspects of accountability or software and things like that? Why do you think this kind of radical shift is important, not just in the church, but in the lives of young men and women um, as we're dealing with kind of the devastating effects of pornography in our culture? Yeah, well, of course, I, I have no objection to software filters and the other sort of practical strategies. That's all fine. But we all know that what is most profound about us, the deep source out of which we actually live, the deepest thing about us is what we believe. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about every member of the human race. So um, I don't think much is going to change if we're only addressing surface level behaviors. Behavior modification, okay, fine. I suppose there's a place for that. But what if your generation of magnificent young men dares to believe in who God says they really are? The software filters and so forth, they'll, they'll help, but a profound movement of God's mercy and grace will flow out of these men, out to the world. I deeply believe that no one is helped by being scolded and shamed and belittled and coerced into behavior modification. I deeply believe anyone and everyone can be helped by being encouraged, included, respected, and lifted up. And that is the way of the gospel. The gospel has been transforming people's personal character and renewing societies for 2,000 years. <laughs> and uh, I believe that that is the most powerful, most hope-inspiring remedy for the scourge of pornography that is descending upon our generation. I know that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is sprinting through this world today, saving people, scooping them up in his arms, right and left, and having a blast doing so. The risen Christ is not tired. He is not fed up. He is not tired of you or me or anyone. And uh, if when we believe that, when that becomes the central conviction in our perception of reality, we start getting free. I feel like we could almost end the podcast right there, but I have so many more <laughs> questions I want to okay. get to. Uh, but I think you're, it's interesting the way you talk about this because this kind of scourge of pornography on our society, I think it's interesting that a lot of our society is kind of waking up to that in some sense. Um, you see this with major credit card companies refusing to do business with certain porn sites, especially those who have illegal content. Um, you see certain social media platforms ban pornography. And that's kind of an open question on the social media market is that some apps ban it and don't allow it on their platform and others seem to relish in it. But one of the things that I, th I found really interesting about your book specifically is that you're so open. You're very honest about not only maybe past struggles that you've had, but even thinking through like on the very, I think it's the very first page or two, you say, you say uh, that you're a man of God, that you love your wife, but you are a sexual sinner. 
Why was that important as you're writing these letters and writing this book to be honest and open and transparent about being a sexual sinner? Um, not that there may be active sin in your life in that sense, but like saying, hey, this this is a struggle that I also have had. This is a struggle that we all have, and you're not in this alone. That's right. Well, everyone who enters puberty becomes a sexual sinner. I believe in what Christian theology calls the doctrine of total depravity. That is, everything about me all the time, including right now, if sin were the color yellow, like police tape at a crime scene, I would glow yellow all the time. And so would you. So would we all. So I've never had a sin-free moment in all my life. And it just touches everything. Well, why don't we just own that? And the reason why that matters is that starting out a book like, in a book like this, especially about our sexuality is so personal. It's so tender. There's, there's such emotional impact that the power of shame is so gripping. But Jason, there's no shame among equals. So I wanted to, to, to set the table, so to speak, early on and say, we're equals here. And no man reading this book, no woman reading this book, is facing anything that I haven't faced. So let's put the truth of our need, the truth of our failure, and so forth, the truth of our betrayals. Let's put it all right out on the table as friends together, as allies, and, with, and no one is shamed, no one is singled out, no one is cornered and embarrassed. But we come together as friends in the presence of the risen Christ. And I believe, Jason, that the risen Christ right now, I mean, the crazy inside me wants to think, he he must despise me. I mean, if he has any self-respect at all, he will despise me. He should despise me. Look at me. I'm 72 years old for crying out loud. I should be a better man by now. Isn't he up there looking at me, rolling his eyes, saying, Ray, really? After all this time? And if I believe that about him, I might keep going to church and I might keep smiling, but I'm hiding and I'm posing and my life is not getting better because we never trend well in isolation and in concealment. But what if we put all our mess honestly right out on the table and look at one another eye to eye as friends and as fellow sinners and fellow sufferers in the presence of Christ. And let's talk about what's really going on. That's one of the most important steps I think any man can take, any woman can take, to get together regularly with a trusted, respected Christian friend who won't yell at you. And both of you Talk about what isn't working in life. Talk about how you're not doing well. I, Jason, I also don't actually use the word accountability in the book because I've seen people use that category in bossy ways. You know, you're, we're, you're accountable, and so tell me your mess. I do use the word transparency because transparency is mutual. When two Christian friends come together, in the presence of the Lord. And each one says to the other, okay, here's what I've been facing this past week. And the other person prays. And the other person says, and here's what I've been facing this past week. 
and the first person praise. That's transparency. And I deeply believe anyone can get traction and start growing into greater freedom in that kind of transparency. This is all kind of part of, and this, this has been so encouraging and edifying to me, just even interviewing you, much less reading the book. But one of the things that you regularly mention in the book is kind of your goal is to encourage men, especially to this new world of nobility, where both men and women can flourish. What do you mean by this term of nobility? I think that's something that maybe some, we don't often hear that language in terms of Christianity and the gospel truth and the church. So what do you mean by the term of kind of pursuing this new world of nobility? And how does this help reframe the issue of pornography, but also other sexual sins and kind of our sexuality in general uh, in the conversations that we have in the local church? Well, it was Isaiah chapter 32, verse 8 that leaped off the page at me some time ago uh, when the prophet says, but he who is noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. I was so struck. Three times in one verse, the prophet uses the word noble. So I looked it up in the Hebrew text. I was surprised to find that that root, that Hebrew root is used in the noun over in the law of Moses for a free will offering. Now, what was a free will offering? It was an over and above, Lord, you have been so amazingly good to me. You know, I've tithed and I've sacrificed. I've done all these, I've followed the protocols of Levitical worship, but having completed that, I'm not satisfied until I just add to it all this outlandish gift of devotion as a free will offering. It's not required, but your heart won't rest until you just pour out that free will offering. Now, that helps me understand the mentality of biblical nobility. Biblical nobility is a heart, a mindset, a way of thinking, an outlook on life that is, as we would say today, all in. It's a generous, wholehearted, enthusiastic, cheerfully sacrificial determination and resolve that Jesus will be glorified where right now he is distorted and denied. So a world of nobility is my son's generation, again, starting to believe in who they really are in God's sight, starting to believe in who every man and woman is in God's sight, including the people involved in the porn industry. Every Christian guy realizing Those people are precious in the sight of my Savior. I have a moral obligation to them in his sight. I will stop being predatory. I will become their defender and their advocate. And I will take bold steps. I will pay a price for their dignity and for their grandeur. Jason, that mentality, that new resolve leaping up in a man's heart, that is the birth of nobility. And that's a better world beginning to appear right in that moment. The needle starts to move right then away from shame and degradation to nobility and freedom and glory. And I think part of that change you write on pretty early on in the book in the first, I think, two letters, speaking of how we are royalty. Uh, We as men are royalty, but she is also royalty, especially as you're writing to young men in this book. Can you explain a little bit about what that means that we're royalty in the sense of our identity in Christ? 
and how that can kind of rally us together in understanding the dignity and the value of every single human being. We actually have to open up our Bibles to find out who we really are. Because every single day in this world, we are trivialized. We are mistreated. In this world, you and I are units in social collectivities merely useful for somebody else's selfish grandiosity. For example, we're part of a market niche, part of a voting block, and so forth, whatever it might be. The advertising coming at us trivializes us. It has no awareness of who we really are. So the message we get from the world is demoralizing and degrading. But when we open up the Bible, the message we get there is actually hard to believe. It's so astonishing that there would be something godlike about me. Not that I'm without sin. Not that I'm omnipotent. This is not like a a graduation speech uh, at a high school <laughs> where the speaker tells you, oh, you're so wonderful, you can do anything you want. Just you know, do a search on the internet and get the right information and become whatever you want to be. I don't believe that. That's actually quite small. One of the reasons why we live in such an angry world right now is that there is a deep, intuitive awareness. I'm not nothing. I'm not trash. And everything around me, and even my own thoughts, treat me as I'm frustrated. Why isn't this working? And we, we search around for a, an identity that will satisfy us way down deep, and a sense of purpose that will satisfy us, and nothing does. We give our hearts away to these false and fraudulent purposes. We get our hearts broken over and over again. We move from one trend to another, from one cause to another, from one idol to another. And no wonder everybody is angry and we're all blaming each other. And God comes among us through the scripture and says, let's just change the subject from everything you hate about your life to every purpose I have for you. You can stop hating your life. You can stop hating one another. You can start believing in the truth of who I say you are, and you can start making this whole world a better place. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, so that is so encouraging to me because that's how at the ERLC and through our work, especially in technology ethics, that's something we're trying to help people recapture, especially in the digital age, is this understanding of the dignity and the value and worth of every single human being uh, no matter their belief, because a lot of the issues that we face surrounding technology and in the public square, as you say, is that there's this longing for identity, there's this longing for purpose, and there's frustration that spawns from that. And kind of reframing in this understanding of the of human dignity, which is really at the core of Christian ethics, uh, that's kind of my specialty, my focus, um, helps to refocus and reframe a lot of the issues of the day through this idea of human dignity. I know I hear regularly from pastors who are kind of beat down in some sense, especially throughout this uh, the pandemic, but a lot of the social tensions that have been flaring, a lot of the political tensions that have been flaring over the years. And you serve as a pastor to pastors at Emmanuel. Uh, you've been a longtime pastor. I know you've been a personal encouragement to me throughout the years, as, as well as many other men and women. And so I want to ask you uh, to shift gears a little bit and ask you some, a pastoral question. 
I know a lot of pastors, um, especially we just saw some recent research come out to say that I think it was almost half of Protestant pastors have heard uh, within their churches people talking about conspiracy theories or falling victim to fake news. And uh, there's this, this tension that's kind of flaring up within the church and even kind of the wider culture. So what advice or counsel would you have specifically for church leaders on navigating some of these kind of tough issues surrounding technology, tough issues surrounding social issues and political issues, and encourage them to kind of reevaluate and encourage their people to reevaluate their relationship with technology, uh, coming just specifically from a pastoral perspective? Yeah, Jason, wow. Thank you. I don't see any quick fix. I think what we're discovering is how under-discipled by Christ we and our people actually are. And it's these social forces over the last five, six, seven years that have just brought up to the surface the deeper layers of incomprehension and unbelief in us all. The definite article, the issue for us as pastors is to help people see believe in and follow the real Jesus. Not the Jesus Jr., not the bobblehead Jesus that sort of just rubs off on us along the way somehow as we're walking through American culture, especially in the South and the Bible Belt. There is a famine of the deeply soul-satisfying, magnificent, massive, industrial strength, real Jesus Christ. When we pastors press by faith into who he really is and then share those astonishing discoveries with people, then we have a Savior big enough to rally around, big enough to let us loosen our grip on these false causes and distractions and secondary and tertiary issues that do divide us and we can come together around him. But it's going to take a generation of fresh, courageous, big Jesus preaching and discipleship. It's going to take a generation. Because A.W. Tozer, 50, 60 years ago, said, a revival of the kind of Christianity we have in America today would be a moral disaster the impact of which it would take us a century to get over. I believe that is still our position today. And we pastors are simply discovering how profound uh, is the need of our people and of our cities. And there's no answer except to go back and rediscover the actual grandeur of Christ and then preach and disciple and evangelize in light of who he really is and explicitly discredit and disown every Jesus Jr. I think that's, that's such encouragement uh, to a lot of church leaders, because I know this has been a tough season for many, uh, not just church leaders, but even uh, members of the church. I mean, even for my own family who have been more isolated than most, given my wife's uh, cancer treatments and chemotherapy and all of that. It's been, it's been a tough season. And so just Sitting under, just sitting here and listening to you and being encouraged by you has been such an encouragement to me personally. I mean, I feel like I could just keep asking you questions um, and keep this going, but I know we obviously all good things have to come to an end in some sense. And so as we shift gears to kind of ending for today, I want to ask you 
Uh, normally on the podcast, I ask and say, hey, what are a couple resources or books that people, if they want to go a little bit deeper into the issues we talked about? But I want to shift that a little bit for you, um, because when you talk about, um, even just then, you were recalling A.W. Tozer, and some you have these books and these uh, things that have been so formative in your life. I want to ask, what are a couple resources that you would recommend for folks just to encourage listeners, especially to pick up in this age of distraction, in this age of tension, what are a few, maybe even older works that you would recommend folks uh, to check out um, as kind of a supplement to obviously your really helpful book that we'll make sure to highlight in the show notes? Well, first of all, Jason, I want to thank you for the privilege of letting me be on the podcast today. And I'm, I'm grateful to every listener for taking valuable time and committing it to this conversation together. And everyone listening feels, as I do, that we wish God's blessing on you and your dear wife. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, resources, Jason. Um, actually, this is not an old one. This is a book that came out just last year that one of my sons wrote. Dane Ortland. It's, it's entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, that is who Jesus really is way down deep. The one time in the New Testament when he sort of opened his chest, so to speak, and showed us his heart and told us about his heart. In Matthew chapter 11, he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, my core being, my deepest psychological substratum. I will never not be this. It's who I am at my deepest level, gentle and lowly. Jason, we've parachuted into a universe where ultimate reality is gentleness and lowliness. Oh my goodness, that's a game changer. That's a paradigm shift that can help every one of us. So I recommend my son Dane's book. And then I would also recommend The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. In this brilliantly told imaginative story, he gives us eyes to see. What's at stake in our lives? How much we really matter? What God is fishing for from us, which is basically all he wants is our openness so that he can bless us and lift us into the glory of Christ. C.S. Lewis gives us such a, an important key to our future is our imaginations being resurrected from the dead. And seeing God and ourselves and one another with new eyes, we need a Christianized imagination. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and others are brilliant at re-Christianizing our imagination so that our eyes see the glory that surrounds us. It's like that, you know, your eighth grade science project when you had ultraviolet light and, you know, you put the rocks on display and then flip on the light and suddenly you see the sparkles. Christian imagination turns on the lights, and we begin to see how reality sparkles, including, to our own surprise, people that we would otherwise be tempted to despise. Well, that is such a, an encouraging note to end on, Ray. I just want to thank you so much, one, for your ministry, 
uh, for the years of ministry you've given to Emmanuel and in the academy and just pastoring pastors. I know you've been such an encouragement to me, even though I don't serve in pastoral ministry directly. Um, it's been such an encouragement to me over the years. And I know this in conversation especially has been encouragement. So just thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk about this book, uh, which we highly recommend. We'll have in the show notes for listeners to grab as well as those recommended resources. But thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, as well as share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Ortland and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.